If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and this is what it says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the proofs that we have seen of your risen son, Lord God. And we thank you that he is available to us today, Lord Jesus. We pray your blessing on the message today. We pray your anointing on pastor as he shares. And let our hearts, our minds, and our spirits be open to what you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, good morning. We are here to celebrate the, the, today uh, the risen Savior. Amen? Amen. Now, now, let me just tell you a little bit about this story. Here, here's how this thing really begins to unfold. Uh, this guy named Jesus shows up on the scene. Uh, kind of, he's been raised in poverty. Uh, hasn't been raised in a powerful home by any stretch of the imagination. But he begins to come out and he begins to teach and begins to do some things, and, he, and he, his teaching was unique. Most of us, even today, when we teach, we teach out of the authority of the Word. We'll say the Scripture says, the Bible says. And in that day, the Pharisees, the leaders of the law, they would say, you know, the Scripture said, or they would say this writer said, or this person said, and they would build their authority based on uh, what, what somebody else had said, and they would unfold that for us. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus would come out, and he would say, you have been told, but I say unto you. He took authority of his own, which to the, to the crowd was kind of an amazing thing. In fact, as Jesus began to teach and began to do some of the things that he did, he made a very startling claim in the way that he taught, in the miracles that he performed, in the actions of his life, he made a claim. He said and taught that he was the manifestation of the Son of God. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, he was the Son. That he was God among us, Emmanuel, God with us. C.S. Lewis, uh, the, the great writer of the Chronicles of Narnia and many other writings, wrote about this claim of Jesus. And he said, he said, all of us, all of us are left with really one of three choices when we hear about the claim of Jesus. We can't just ignore this. We've got to decide what we believe about this. And he said our choices are really very simple. He goes, the first choice is we can determine he was just a liar, not a good teacher, not a good philosopher. He was a liar. He didn't tell the truth. He knew he wasn't the Son of God. He proclaimed to be the Son of God. He said there was only one way to heaven, and it was through him, and he knew that wasn't true, and he lied to people, and millions of people have been deceived because of the lie. He said the other option is, is that he was a lunatic. He was just crazy. He really thought he was the Son of God, but he wasn't the Son of God. And he was just out of his mind. 
He said the third option is real simple. He is the Son of God. He's exactly who he claimed to be. And that option gives us, again, two options. The options are real simple. Either we submit ourselves to him and put our faith in him and trust him because he's the Son of God, or we look at him and say, nope, we believe you're the Son of God, but we reject you. He said man's left with these choices because Jesus drew the picture so clearly that we wouldn't be able to skirt around what he said. He made the claim that he was the Son of God. The things Jesus said and did during that time drew followers to him. Literally at times, thousands of thousands of people would come out to listen to what he had to say, to hear his teaching, to see what he did. And he taught with this authority and this claim of who he was. When he did that, this brought him not only some followers, but this brought this guy, Jesus, it brought him some pretty powerful enemies. People who didn't believe him, people who were jealous of the crowds that he was drawing, people who feel threatened by the position that he was taking, people who didn't like what Jesus was doing. And as he proceeded through the next three years, the more he talked, the more he did, the more he stood up against the flow of the day and taught a new way of living, the more he did these things, the more the old guard didn't like him, the more they felt threatened by him, and they came to this point where they became intent, first of all, on trying to discredit him, and when they couldn't do that, they became intent upon killing him, getting him off the scene. And you know what? They did it. They manipulated government. They manipulated people. They undermined things until the day came when Jesus was taken out and crucified. And the process of those last week especially as things really began to unfold and the powers really began to come against Jesus, some of Jesus' closest followers betrayed him. People who traveled with him, people who had been around him, people who knew what he had to say and had seen what he had done. Some betrayed him. Some in those days simply abandoned him. As the, as, the, as the physical forces came against him, they didn't stand by his side. They ran. They hid. They protected themselves. And as the days unfolded and as he was taken and beaten and crucified, even the people who loved him deeply, they were filled with grief, but even they were confused that he was lost and that he died. See, on that first resurrection morning, that first couple days after he, had, after he had been crucified, there was no planned celebration like we're having today. There was no great day of hope coming. No one was looking for Jesus to come out of the grave. I mean, who does that? 
For those who followed him, for those who put their faith in him, for those who looked at him and believed that he was the Son of God, believed that he had come from the Father in heaven, all seemed lost. It seemed like everything they put their faith in was gone. To them, it seemed like they'd put their trust in him and it wasn't true. He'd been taken and been crucified. I mean, after all, if Jesus was so great, if he really was the Son of God, if he really was all-powerful and all-knowing, if he could speak worlds into existence, if he could really accomplish the great things that only God could accomplish, how could any government come against him and kill him? I mean, couldn't he just, if he can speak to the, to the sea and it's calm, what could, he do, what could he do against any force that aligned itself against him? They were confused. How could this be? How could a group of religious leaders outwit him and get the crowd to come against him, get the politicians to come against him, and destroy him if he's really the Son of God? See, at this moment in time, the claims of Jesus that he was the Son of God and the outcome that he had been defeated by the Roman soldiers and the Roman government and by the Pharisees, the claim and the outcome are opposed to each other. See, normally in those days, crucified bodies would be left on the cross for days. They would be left there in the heat and the sun for all the natural courses of what happens to a body in that condition to take place. The stench would be terrible. The sight would be absolutely disgusting. And then at the end of the day, when they finally decided, when the, when the powers finally decided they can take that body down, they wouldn't even bury the bodies. They would give the bodies no respect at all. They would just take them and throw them in the garbage dump. In America, in our day and our age, we've never seen anything like this. It was meant to be an intimidating message to anybody who would come against the government. It was meant to be a message of you better, you better submit, you better go along, you better not cause any trouble, because if you do, this is what's going to happen to you. And it was a message that was meant to tell everybody, step back, and it worked. In Jesus' case, however, the Passover was coming. People from all over the, the known world that, that believed uh, in Judaism were coming into Jerusalem. It was a great day of celebration, and the religious leaders and the government leaders that had influence in the, upon the Romans uh, wanted to make sure that things looked as good as they could. And so they had, at the time of the crucifixion, after this was unfolding, they came to Pilate and they said, listen, uh, we, we'd really like to get things cleaned up for the celebration. Would you help us out here and, and do something, make sure these guys are dead? And can we get them taken care of so it doesn't look so bad? And Pilate, being a politician had decided, okay, we'll do that this time. In the meantime, a couple of guys come to Pilate. A rich businessman comes to Pilate, and a, and a Pharisee comes to Pilate on the side. 
And, and they say to him, they say, listen, Jesus is dead. He's died. Pilate checks it out, finds out that it's true that Jesus has died. And they say, listen, we'd like to take the body. These guys had been secret followers. They, they liked his teaching. They, they hoped he was the Messiah. And in honor of that, they wanted to take the body down and bury it. And Pilate had finally said, okay. Probably had received a bribe from the businessman. You can have the body. You can take it and bury it. And they took his body down and put it, put it in the tomb. Now, at this point in time, nobody is thinking about Jesus coming out of the grave. This, this isn't on, on their minds. Uh, you know, the, the, fair, the, 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 the church world is, you know, the, the, the disciples, they're not gathering together in a little room and saying, okay, guys, we know it's Easter this Sunday morning. Uh, let's think, who's going to sing? Can we get a choir together to sing some nice songs? We want to have, who's going to lead worship this Sunday? None of this is going. They're not saying, hey, let's make sure we plan a good Easter afternoon lunch so we can all have family over and celebrate. No, none of that's going on. Nobody's thinking anything's going to happen except what you think happens when somebody dies. Now, the Pharisees, they've kind of got an idea in their head. They remember that Jesus, when he was on the earth, had, had said, if you destroy this body, I'll raise it up in three days. And they get to thinking, you know, what are these disciples going to do? Maybe what these disciples are going to do are going to sneak around and steal the body, and then they're going to tell a lie that he's risen from the grave. So we want to stop that. So they, they now go to Pilate. They're the only ones who are thinking anything about Jesus not being in the grave, and they think he's going to be stolen. So they go to Pilate, and they say, listen, uh, this guy, he, he told some big stories when he was on this earth. He had some big things that he did. And, and one of the things that he told was that he was going to rise from the grave. And that's going to cause us all kinds of problems if these disciples come and steal his body. Will you put a guard on the tomb and make sure they don't do that? And Pilate, sure he's kind of exasperated with him, but he finds, yeah, sure, sure, whatever. Just get out of here and leave me alone. yes. And they set a guard on the tomb. Because, you see, nobody's thinking in any real terms that Jesus is going to come out of the grave. So as you think about that, and you think about them stealing the body, you've got to ask yourself, why would they steal the body? Why would they do that? These men who were too afraid to fight for him when he was alive. These men who were too afraid to stand with him, but fled when he was alive. These men who had denied him when he was alive. Why would the disciples risk their lives to steal the body and then lie about him being alive when they were too afraid to stand with him when he was alive. Now that everything that he taught about himself had been proven to be false, he hadn't exercised the power of God. He had been overcome by uh, the Romans. He had been overcome 
by the Pharisees. Now that all these things have been proven and he was dead, why would they step up now? And that time after the crucifixion, the disciples were not planning the first resurrection Sunday morning service. They were not laying out plans for a coming out party. They had no plans to go to the tomb on Sunday and witness the angels rolling the stone away. They were grieving in their spirits over their loss. They had traveled with him these years. They thought he was this great this great being that was going to set them free. All of that was gone. All of that was done. They're now planning the rest of their lives in a very practical way. They're dealing with the fact that the claims of Jesus to be the Son of God and the outcome that he had been defeated and killed left them aimless. Some of them had actually started to head for home. On that first Sunday morning, some women made their way down to the tomb. They didn't go there expecting to find Jesus alive. They went there uh, expecting to finish the embalming process to make sure he was buried properly and his body was cared for properly. They had nothing else to hope for. They were just going out of love for him and his kindness to them. I mean, who would? But it is here, at this very moment, that the story turns from being just another tragic story of evil over good to being the single most important story of all stories in the history of the world. It's where the story becomes so relevant and practical in every one of our lives. It is right here at this moment that everything turns. See, it is on the resurrection morning that the claim of Christ to be the Son of God and the outcome of what happens through his life come into perfect alignment. Instead of his claim and the outcome being opposed, they now come into harmony. On Friday, Jesus was the perfect Passover lamb. And on Sunday, Jesus is the resurrected king of all kings. Now, why do we believe this story? Why do people all around the world today, millions of people all around the world will gather together and they'll sing and they'll worship and they'll thank God, they'll listen to messages about the resurrected king. Why do we celebrate resurrection today? See, the claim of history was that Jesus was beaten, that he was crucified, that he was pierced with a sword, that he was laid in a grave dead and guarded by Roman soldiers. That story is in dramatic opposition to the birth of the church and the reality that that message would go forth for the next 2,000 years and that people would discover resurrection power in their own lives and millions and millions of people would put their faith in him. None of that says that should happen. Until, until the resurrection comes into the story. Claims and outcome are in opposition 
until you add the resurrection. The only way any of this outcome makes sense is because of the resurrection. The resurrection, instead of making Christianity seem far-fetched, does just the opposite. The resurrection makes Christianity believable. Let's think about this. The resurrection story doesn't spring onto the page 500 years after Jesus' life. You know, the kind of stories kind of moping around out there someplace, and 500 years later, you know, some guys get together and say, listen, uh, this is all good, but this isn't getting us any place. Uh, the only way this really, you know, really gets us someplace is if Jesus was resurrected. Now all of a sudden you start hearing people talk about resurrection. That's not the way it happened. It didn't happen 200 years later. It didn't even happen 100 years later after the first, after the first, uh, uh, the, the first followers of Christ were dead and off the scene. No, it didn't happen at any of those times. You know when it happened? Matthew believed it happened. This tax collector that Jesus had come into and interrupted his life, who had put his faith in Jesus and had now ran from him and fled from him while he's beaten and crucified, suddenly says, Jesus is alive. John said it, the beloved disciple, who had stood at the very crucifixion and watched him die and taken his mother into his home. John comes out of this story going, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait a second. That's not where it ended, fellas. Peter, who had been so afraid that even though he tried to follow Jesus, but denies him three times on the night of his trial, all of a sudden springs onto the scene saying, wait a second, Jesus is alive. Luke, that we've read about, one of the first century Christians, begins to investigate things closely and carefully and writes in the book of Luke, and as we've read at the beginning of the book of Acts, talking about all of the proofs that Jesus came and showed them that he was alive, that he still was, that he was living to that day. One of the amazing stories is that Jesus' brothers who were not much of the pre, were not shown much in the pre-crucifixion narrative of the Bible. They just weren't around for many of the stories. And when they do show up, they kind of show up as doubters. And now all of a sudden, in the early days of the church, the very beginning of the church, they suddenly spring onto the scene and become leaders inside of the early church because they believe what they didn't believe before. They didn't believe it because of his teaching. They didn't believe it because of the miracles. But their story changed because of the resurrection. And the church begins to take place, begins to be birthed. And then there's Paul, this guy who was a, a Pharisee, studying and trained, trying to grow up in power, and literally, sincerely thought that this sect of people called followers of Christ, these people are followers of Jesus, he literally thought that he was doing God a favor by silencing them. 
And he put all of his effort and all of his time into doing everything he could to squash this message, to keep it from being, from being set loose amongst people, literally dragging people off to prison, literally standing, and they would put, they, they put their cloaks at his feet while they stoned Stephen to death. All of a sudden, makes a 180, turns from being opposed to the church to becoming the greatest apologist that the church has ever seen, proclaiming one central truth, that Jesus was risen from the grave. Listen to what he says about 20 years later, 20, 25 years later, in 1 Corinthians. He writes to Corinth and he says, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you have received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to Scripture. It begins, Jesus made it clear to him. They now get it. He was the perfect lamb. He was the sacrifice. He was the final sacrifice. Was going, he had to go to the cross. He had to die for our sin. His blood had to be shed so we could be set free, just like Scripture said. They said that he was buried, and then comes the amazing part of the story, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Who's James? James is his, old, his, his brother. I, you know, I, this is one of the stories when I get to heaven, you know, I kind of want to download on my computer or whatever God has for us there and see how this one played out. I mean, how would you feel if, you know, you had a brother that claimed to be the son of God and you thought he was a little wacko and they kill him and all of a sudden he shows up in your living room? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how that scene unfolds? And yet years later we find James writing that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What changed him? The resurrection changed him. The resurrection transformed him. He got it. He was really the son of God. This is last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul writes, he says, listen, after, he, after he, he, he appeared to all those others, God in his mercy and his grace on the Damascus road appeared to me. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But he came and showed himself to me so I would know who he was. Jesus made an audacious claim, and it seemed false at the beginning until the outcome was altered at the empty tomb. 
And at the empty tomb, it comes into perfect alignment. Jesus claimed to be our Passover lamb, but he also claimed that we have to apply his blood through faith to our hearts. Today, millions celebrate. Millions sing with hope about the story that in all reality should have ended on Friday. Should have been over on Friday. Should have been forgotten and cast into the annals of history as just another guy who wasn't what he claimed to be. But it lives on today because the claims of Jesus to be the Son of God came into perfect alignment on Resurrection Sunday with the outcome of his life. And now it's up to us. What are we going to do with Jesus? You've got to make a decision. Even if you say, I'm not making a decision, you walk out having made a decision. See, either he's the Lord or he isn't. Either he's the Son of God or he isn't. And if he is, I've got to make a decision about that. Am I going to put my faith in him and my trust in him? See, here's another claim of Jesus. He says that we will all stand before God the Father someday in final judgment. That our lives will be judged. And in that moment when we stand before him, if we come there and we say, hey, I was a pretty good guy, it's better than my neighbor. Your neighbor's not the standard. If you stand there and say, hey, I, I was a pretty good guy. I was raised in a Christian home by good Christian parents. That's not the standard. You say, hey, I, I, you know, God, I, I should get into heaven because, you know, uh, I didn't really hurt anybody. That's not the standard. The only thing that's good enough is that we put our faith in Jesus, that his work on the cross has been applied to our life, and his resurrection power has moved in our spirit. That's the only answer. And if we don't have that answer, we stand there lost. Friend, hear me. In whatever circumstances you're facing today, this can be your resurrection day. This can be the day that you decide. But you've got to ask yourself, this claim of Christ, it only makes sense if he's resurrected. The church only makes sense if he's resurrected. Transformed lives only make sense if he's resurrected. And he's only resurrected if he's the son of God. Nobody else is doing that. Only Jesus. Let's stand together today and let's pray. Father, right now across this room, I pray you'd speak to our lives and we would consider this claim of Christ. Lord, we know we lived. Father, anybody who says that isn't true has just lost all sense of reality. We know he lived. We know he made claims. The guys who walked with him, wrote about him, bear witness to him, say they are witnesses to his life and his actions and write them to us, all because they were witnesses of his life. But not only were they witnesses of his life, they were witnesses of his death and his resurrection.
And so, Lord, today we're left with this clear choice that your son gave to us. Are we going to submit our lives to him or are we not? Father, today across this room, so many of us come in here because we have. We've discovered resurrection power in our lives. And we walk in it and trust you in it. But Father, we pray for anyone that may be here today that's not done that. That today needs to make a change and begin to follow you. And I pray you'd speak to our lives today and let us hear your voice. In Jesus' name. Is every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do today. If you need to get your heart right with God, if today you need to accept Jesus as your Savior. See, here's what the Bible says. says this, if anyone calls on his name, they will be saved. And if you say, Pastor, today I've heard this. I've sensed it in my spirit that it's true. And I want to call on the name of Jesus. I want to be saved today. I want to make sure that when I stand before God, I am born again. And here's what I'm asking you to do right now. I'm asking just very clear, just to, right now, in this moment, this most important decision, this most important action of your life, that before God, you'll say, God, I'm, by lifting my hand, I am calling out to you. I'm asking pastor to pray with me so I'll be saved. If that's you, you need to do that. I'm asking you to raise your hand right now and say, pastor, pray for me all across this room today. God bless you. I see that hand in the back. Others today, you'll raise your hand and say, God bless you. I see that hand. Others today, you'll raise your hand and say, pray for me today. Pastor, I want to make sure my heart's right with you. I understand this is the most important decision that I'll ever make, and I want to make it for Christ today. Others will raise your hand and say, pray for me. God bless you. Anyone else today? Anyone else? Waiting just a moment. Mm, praise God. Praise God. Yes. Anyone else today? God bless you. God sees that hand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Let's all pray this prayer together today. Our altar teams, will you come on down to the front, would you please, right now? Let's all pray this prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. And I ask you, to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I put my faith in Jesus to be my Savior. I put my trust in Jesus to be my Lord. Now I ask you to help me to live for him who died for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, now, folks, let me just tell you, there's resurrection power for us. If you're one of those folks that raised your hand, we want to invite you in the next couple of minutes to come down and let somebody pray. Now, normally, we kind of line up and let everybody come to one person, but today we're doing this a little bit different. Because, see, there's not only resurrection power for us today for our salvation. There's resurrection power for us in a lot of things today. That resurrection power can move in your life to bring healing in your life. That resurrection power can move in your life to set you free from addictions. That resurrection power can move in your life to help you emotionally stand whatever you're facing today, to give you 
comfort in an hour of grief or in the hour of need. That resurrection power can move in your life today to clear up jealousy or bitterness or from, from actions of abuse from your past. That resurrection power is available for you. And so I'm just asking you all, everybody who needs a touch of resurrection power today, just to step out and come down to the front. You don't have to go to a specific couple. Just come and stand down here around the front. They'll kind of work their way around in the next few minutes and pray for you. But especially if you raise your hand for salvation, you make sure you talk to one of them. We want to give you something and help you on that journey. But right now, as we sing that chorus, if you need a touch of resurrection power, just step out and come down to the front, and we're going to pray together before we go. Right now, come in Jesus' name. Father, we just pray for those around the altar and those that need that touch of you. We're so grateful today, Father, that you give us the opportunity to come before you and to seek you. And that, Father, not only do you give us the opportunity to seek you, but that there's resurrection power available for our lives today. Father, whatever people need that touch from today, Father, whether it's an addiction, whether it's a habit, Father, whether it's a health issue, we just pray today, Lord, that you would just move in these lives and apply, as you did on that first resurrection morning, that you would apply resurrection power into the lives of your believers that follow after you. That, Father, those who are far from you would be drawn to you and know they need to surrender their heart wholly unto you in Jesus' name. Let all that happen for the glory of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, give the Lord a clap offering. Would you do that? Now, now, friends, let me tell you, as believers, we should walk through this life with a bit of a holy swagger, you know, because we know that they threw their worst at Jesus, and what happened three days later? What happened? He's resurrected. The world can throw its worst at us, and God still got his best for us, amen? And we can walk through this life even in the dark hours. See, we're not looking at it the way the, the apostles did. They didn't know resurrection was coming. We know it's coming. We know God's answer's coming. And whatever we're facing, we can walk with that joy. So today, before we go, we just want to celebrate a little bit more. If you want somebody to pray with you, you can still come on down and let somebody pray with you. Don't leave. Uh, and then after this, as you go out the doors, they have a sticker for you to wear today just to celebrate. It says, this is my resurrection day. Amen. Amen. Bless the Lord.